G'day and welcome to the Hunter's Campfire Podcast. My name's Mark and along with good mate Ian, we're here to help with all things hunting. If you're looking to start but don't know where to begin, you want to make the most of your next trip away or even plan that hunt of a lifetime, we've got something for you. You'll find our podcasts on Apple, Google, Spotify, Amazon and plenty of others. And if you want more, head over to our YouTube channel, The Hunter's Campfire where we have plenty of how-to and hunting videos along with the full video production of every podcast. Don't forget to like and subscribe, and good hunting. Well, good evening, everyone, and thanks for uh, watching. Tonight we have with us Jonathan Steele, or as we like to call him, Jono, who's going to talk to us about all things hunting, including uh, some of his experiences overseas, but most importantly about his experiences as a new hunter hunting the pillager. So welcome, Joe. Good evening. So, uh, mate, let's jump straight into it. Give us a bit of a background of your hunting experience. Yeah, well, as you can probably tell from the accent, um, I'm not a native Queenslander or native Australian, um, born in South Africa. Um, like many who've been on this podcast, I wasn't born into a hunting family. Um, I was raised in a single fa- uh, single parent family. Um, my mum raised me. My dad, my parents were divorced. My dad was around, but not very involved in my life, and he wasn't a hunter. Um, he got me involved in fishing, though, which I'm, you know, very grateful for. Um, so I was brought up as a as a fisherman. Um, I lived a few minutes from the beach, so I had access to, you know, really good fishing, really good diving, um, and and that probably got me started in, you know, that that sort of pursuit sports. Um, it was really when I got to my mid teens um, in high school. Um, I went to an all boys high school and I had a uh, economics teacher who would rock up on a Friday morning and proclaim that he had a hangover, didn't want to teach us. And as long as we uh, we didn't make a noise, he was happy for us to do whatever we wanted. So we'd sit there in class and, um, you know, just talk amongst ourselves. We're not going to actually do schoolwork if we don't have to. Um, and that's where I got to know um, my mate Rory. So my Rory's my best mate. We've been friends since, yeah, mid-teens. Um, he was, we, we had a shared interest in fishing, um, but the, you know, those discussions soon, soon changed into, into hunting. His grandfather was a, was an old school farmer, grew up in the Natal Midlands of South Africa, um, and it introduced Rory to hunting as a youngster. Um, and, you know, we started talking about it and my ears sort of pricked up and never really been interested in hunting, but the conversations really, really drew me in. You know, he'd bring some photos in and show me some of the animals that he had shot and, just really got me interested in in in, in hunting. Um, so year twelve, we finished we finished school, uh, and within I think three days of finishing year twelve, we we're in my little ute heading um, a few hours south um, to a to a property to go hunting. It was my first hunting trip. Um, we would borrowed a two seventy, a Bruno two seventy, um, beautiful little gun from from my doctor, who was actually a um, an avid hunter, um, and he was you know really trying to drive us towards towards hunting it was actually his property uh, it was just a, a, a cattle farm that had some game on it um, and he said here you go this is the way you go there and you know go go for it um, I'd never shot a rifle before um, so I was really you know following Rory's lead and and seeing what you know what this hunting thing was about we, we got there on the first day and we, we headed out into this gully and there was a, a herd of probably 20 or 30 blessed buck um, and Rory shot one, and that was the first animal I'd ever seen shots. The first time I ever heard a rifle go off, and I was just absolutely hooked. Um, you know, we spent the rest of that afternoon and evening sitting around the fire, having a beer, gutting this thing, 
preparing it, getting the food going, you know, getting the meats um, all chopped up and, and sliced up for, for making biltong, which is something that all South Africans are raised on. You know, when you're a, a, an infant teething, you get a stick of biltong and you just chew it until <laughs> it's this white leathery, um, leathery stuff. So it's, 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 it's something we're raised on. Um, and now to be actually harvesting it and actually being able to make it for ourselves, just I was absolutely hooked. And that was me. <laughs> I, you know, I was 18. I applied for my first gun license uh, for a 308, which I still own to this day. Um, unfortunately, it's over in South Africa. Trying to get it over into Australia is, is difficult, but I've still managed to maintain my license and it's it's got some sentimental value to me. And someday I'd like to try and bring it over if I can, but um, I've actually signed it over to Rory. Uh, he keeps it in his gun safe for me. And when I go back to South Africa, I've got a, my old rifle, my first ever rifle that I've owned that I can shoot with. So it's it's really got that sentimental value to me. Um, but from there, we started, you know, heading to the range once I got that rifle and got my license, um, doing some practice, learning how to shoot and doing a couple of hunting trips, um, you know, slowly, you know, just shooting the smaller game, the cheaper, the cheaper animals, because, you know, I was a young student um, and couldn't afford much. But, you know, a couple of hundred bucks for, a, for an animal and you got the whole carcass and you could drop it off with the butcher and the butchers will process it for you, turn it into biltong where you could do it yourself if you've got the means to, um, which at that time I didn't. Um, and then, you know, I did a couple of hunts and I was absolutely hooked on hunting. You know, my whole life revolved around hunting at that point. Um, when I turned 21, um, decided to move to the UK. Um, it was, I didn't get involved in shooting. I lived in London. I was 21 years old. I was partying. I had access to, you know, um, all the, all the, the spoils of London. Um, but every year I'd go back to South Africa for a trip and my whole trip was planned around hunting. It was, I'd meet up with Rory, we'd talk about hunting, we would plan our trip, we would go off for a week, we would target a specific species um, or you know, a specific animal, make sure that we were you know, getting what we wanted. But at the end of the day, I'd still turn that, that, that carcass into biltong, go and distribute it amongst all my friends, eat whatever I could for that week and, and then just distribute it amongst everyone. Um, South Africans are very resourceful when it comes to to meat. Um, you know, they go out every winter. That's their hunting season. Um, they'll fill the freezer, make their biltong, make their sausage, which they, they have a, a sausage, which is a big coil, um, which they call buravos, which is translates to farmer's sausage. Chuck that in the freezer and that gets cooked on the, you know, on a charcoal fire. Um, so very resourceful. And that's where my respect for for venison and for utilizing the whole animal has come from. Um, and to this day, I still make sure that I utilize as much as possible um, and wherever possible of, of, the, of the animals that I take. Um, but anyway, you know, every year I'd go back to South Africa. We'd always do these trips. We'd always try and target new species, new areas, um, you know, try and make, make it a new experience every single trip um, to get the most out of it. Um, it was only after a few years in, in the UK that I, I started exploring the hunting opportunities that the UK has to, op to, has to offer. Um, I got in touch with, I found someone online, got in touch with him, and he was offering some sort of guided hunts for people of all sorts of experiences. So I met up with him. He was a young guy named Austin. Um, we're still friends to this day. He's an awesome guy. Um, but I'd never hunted in the UK. Um, you know, I didn't really understand the species and the etiquette and, and everything else. But he really showed me the ways and, you know, took me out and showed me foxes and how we can shoot them. And we went and did some fallow deer shooting. Um, and it was a completely different shooting that I'd ever done before because, you know, the majority of the shooting was done in high seats um, at last light or first light, very little stalking. You know, we did the occasional stalking, but most of it was sitting in a high seat, which was very different to, 
you know, the hunting in Africa where it's it's usually walk and stalk. Um, you know, you head out for the day and go walking and kind of like the, the, the hunting that we have here. Um, so it was a very different experience, um, but I embraced it. It was the way that it was done there. Um, and I've, you know, always fully immersed myself in, in the way that it's done. Um, they they have um, some some qualifications that they offer called the deer stalking certificate. So over there, hunting is called stalking as opposed to hunting. Hunting is generally done on a horse chasing foxes, um, which is, of course, illegal now. Um, but so they call it stalking. Um, so I completed my, my deer stalking certificate level one, which is a, a combination of theory and practical um, work where you have to do understand the game laws, you know, the, the firearm laws, the species identification, looking for diseases within animals, um, and then doing species uh, species identification in the field. So they show you a video and you have to be able to identify if it's a male or female because they've got close seasons, obviously, with it for game. Um, and, and some of the species can be quite similar. Um, so and then a practical test, a shooting test um, as well. And then once you complete all that, you, you, you're a, a, a qualified um, deer stalker and they have different levels. So when you get to level two, they um you have to be you actually have a mentor one of the mentor a person who actually goes out with you to to make sure that you're following you know safe practices when you're stalking etc how long did that take that process from you know starting your theory and practical to being allowed to hunt by yourself so there's no restriction you don't have to have a qualification it's not like um, mainland europe where you have to have a qualification um it's some some places or some farms that you shoot will dictate that you you need to be qualified to shoot on your own um but it's not a, a legal requirement um mm. it's really just a a voluntary process to go through to improve your um your knowledge and your skills um and if you wanted to go on some some guided hunts and some properties they'll dictate that you have to have a minimum yeah, of of a yes of, of level one the other thing as well is um so in the UK, the deer belongs to the landowner, obviously going back all those years, um, that's the way it is. So a lot of the bigger states, they they own the deer. So you can come and shoot one, um, but at the end of the day, it's the property of the estate or, or the station, with, you know, in Australian terms. And so, that ownership transfers from farmer to farmer if they help the fence? Is that how it works? Correct, yeah. Same so, as the roaming elephants in Africa? They, they cross from... Yeah, so... Well, like a, it's possession yeah. is, is the law rather than... Putting a tag on it. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, so that's how some of those big, bigger states make their money is by selling game, whether it be, um, you know, the deer or uh, pheasants or partridge or whichever. Um, so that most most of those bigger properties will have, you know, a big lighter or, or, or cold room, a, a processing facility. And then they actually sell that game um, to a game dealer um, and that gets processed and put into the food chain. But in order for a hunter to be able to do that um, yourself, you have to have that at least that deer that deer stalking certificate level one. Um, what a novel idea, Mark! Game yeah, as a resource, crazy. I've I've, um, I've I've got some experience hunting in the UK as well, and um, that's so often you'll you'll pay for access, and the way that they tend to deer hunt over there is is kind of as as John John said, it's kind of like. There's two shifts a day. There's a morning and an afternoon shift. So you don't book a day. You kind of book two shifts. So they'll yep. go out and it might be, you know, 100 pounds or 70 pounds for morning and then such and such because you're not walking on time. Basically, you're going to an ambush position. Um, and then if you're successful, uh, you, could, you can, in certain instances, but not all instances, then pay extra money to buy the meat. So you can kind of buy the meat off the, or it, or it might be, it's already basically, um, 
you know, accounted for, it just goes into the, the processing, then it, then it so it's almost, it's a commercial activity, if you know, if you know what I mean, it becomes a commercial activity. So you you get the, the privilege to shoot it, and then the, uh, the, the, the gamekeeper takes it, and off it goes, and you might not see it again. I've done both, um, I've hunted on both situations where, you know, I shot it, but it belonged to the property, and so we didn't see it. There was another one I was on. They actually said, look, if you want to buy it. So I bought some for the family and took it home and we had Christmas venison. So, but certainly it's a, it's a it's an approach that puts a monetary value on the animal right through the food chain. If you know, as, as John said, you know, it's it's not just the hunting, it's hunting and then there's the meat outcome. Interesting. Sorry, yeah, it's a, yeah, absolutely. Uh, it, it, it's a resource, you know, at, at the end of the day. And as you were saying, you can pay for it. Generally, the, the going rate was a pound a pound um, yeah. is, is the going rate for that. So you, you shot a, um, a roe deer or a, a fallow deer or, or even smaller little munchaks, um, you know, you, if you want to keep it, you, you pay what the estate would have got for that from the game dealer, which would have been a pound a pound and you take it, you take it home. And that's what I used to do. Um, you know, I try and utilize the meat wherever possible, but they've got a different... A different outlook on it so game has a value and it's a, a value to the landowner um so as as mark says it's got a monetary value so therefore they, they really embrace it and they protect it um but mm. it you know you in order for that to go into the food chain you need to be you need to be qualified because they want to make sure that that meat has some integrity and traceability so the carcasses get tagged you know when the carcass was shot where it was shot by who processed it etc so it provides that traceability um, really of that carcass. Um, and that just goes back to it being a, val a valuable resource. And with that, like um, what you might experience is there's actually like a, um, you're not supposed to touch the animal in a lot of ways, you know, that they, they, depending on who you are and what the relationship is, that might be okay. But the general rule is you don't touch it. Once it's on the ground, it's now a potential item for sale. So you know, you you as 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 the amateur kind of stand back and say, this is something I learned firsthand. You know, I was had no experience in that kind of thing, so I kind of stepped forward and stuff. And you know, it was just, oh, hang on, you know, you shouldn't be doing that. <laughs> What's going on? No, you you need to stand back and like my mate Steve went, just just ease off there, buddy. Let them do their job, type thing. So you you've got to really. There's a really a different approach and same with pheasants i've had the opportunity to shoot um pheasants on the on a true drive and um those birds when they hit the ground you know they're that's a saleable item so it gets picked up by someone who's employed to pick it up it gets put with the other ones and it goes off and what they'll often do as a courtesy they'll say would you like a brace and they might give you two birds a brace if you want them but there's the shooting and then there's the meat and they're two very separate components to the whole operation. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I've, I've experienced the, the bird shooting side of it as well. So that was, you know, part of me embracing, you know, all of these shooting um, opportunities as I started doing, I did some rough shooting, which Mark, I know you did as well, walking around with a shotgun in the field and, you know, you've usually got a dog running in and out of the, the hedgerow kicking up some pheasants or kicking up a pigeon or maybe kicking out a hare or a rabbit. Did that with a shotgun. Um, got some, you know, got some good feed out of that as well. Rabbit stew, amazing, you know, really good, good meat. Um, really good fun. 
um, really embracing, you know, all the hunting opportunities or shooting opportunities that that were on offer. Um, and it, look, it's it's a great it's a great shooting experience. It's very different to one that I grew up doing. Um, from you know sitting around, you know, in South Africa it's quite social. You always have the campfire when you get back from your hunt. You walk in stalking. In the UK, it's very much as Mark said. It's a morning and an evening. You, you get taken to your high seat, you get put in your high seat, and if the deer are coming, you know, onto the paddock to feed, you, you're ambushing them and shooting them. Um, and the opposite in, in the morning, when they're coming off the paddock into into some cover, you're shooting them there. And that's probably the, the the one aspect of the UK shooting that I didn't didn't enjoy as much was the fact that you were generally on your own, or maybe you were with one person sitting in a high seat. Um, after that, you would either go home, or you know, you'd go you'd go back to someone's house and within a few minutes and sit around and have some dinner. And there was no, you know, campfire going or anything like that. Obviously the weather plays a part in that. It's it's usually pretty bit, bitterly cold outside in the winter time when you're doing most of the culling activities. Um, but it wasn't it wasn't the shooting that I really enjoyed. Um, I enjoy the real social aspect of it, sitting around the fire, you know, having a few beers after a day, telling stories. That's that's really the enjoyable part. But I embraced it, did it. It's what I had available to me. Um, and I try and, you know, make the most of it. So I made it. I sort of wanted to target all the species that I could. Um, so there's six species of deer in, in the UK available to hunt. I managed to get five of them. Um, the one I didn't get was was a red deer. Um, mm. And, you know, I shot the munchak, the small little munchak, even the Chinese water deer, which I think the UK is the only um, the only place in the world where you can commercially hunt them. Um, and I managed to get um, a, a nice little buck. You can probably see it just behind me over there. You can see its skull. It looks like a, a saber-toothed deer. Um, but th- for me, that was... As I said, I like to embrace what, what's available to me, and I'm not a trophy hunter. Uh, I never say that. You know, I, 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 I eat pretty much every animal that I shoot where, where possible. Um, but I like to have a challenge as well. And you know, shooting all six species of deer was a goal of mine. I didn't get that sixth one, but I knew that I was moving to Australia, and I knew red deer was available to me here in Queensland. So I didn't make it a. Um, I didn't have to get it before I left. Uh, I did try it. Went to Scotland, um, tried to get a red deer. Uh, didn't see one, unfortunately. Uh, my mate shot one, but I didn't. Um, but I certainly tried. Um, so, um, but yeah, on that, going back to that deer stalking certificate, actually on that on that course um, was a young Australian guy by the name of Louis. Um, he was in a similar situation to me, quite young, living in the UK, um, sort of trying to get involved in the shooting um opportunities that were there um, and we we hit it off we became mates and you know kept kept in contact um, and you know we we did, we did a, a weekend hunt together um, and through our conversations and talking to know that you know he had hunted quite a bit here in Australia where he grew up he grew up in Sydney his family had a property out um, in Mudgee in New South Wales and he said well look if you're ever in Australia, let me know. We'll, you know, we'll go out there and do some hunting. And I said, well, that's that's a bit strange. You know, we're actually thinking of moving out to Australia, and I was planning to do a bit of a, a recce trip. And he goes, oh, that's awesome. Let's 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 you know combine this trip and, and we'll do it together. Um, so I flew out to Australia, never been here before, um, and landed in Sydney. And he he comes from you know quite a well-off family and all that. So I got this this introduction to Sydney of sailing down Sydney Harbour on someone's yacht uh-huh. and. Um, it was a very different experience, but yeah, look, I enjoyed it. It was brilliant. But, you know, he took me out to their family property at um, at Young. And then from there, we drove up to um, to Mudgee, which is this little hut in the middle of nowhere. Um, it's not huge. It's just 500, 500 hectares. But they had this hut that they'd built up over 10 or 15 years. And they had taken all their family school holidays up to that area. And 
it was down by the creek and you could grab a rifle and we, we'd head up into the hills and go hunting goats. Um, I'd never seen a, a you know, wild goat before, a feral goat. Um, but in that week, we managed to get, I think, 16 goats between us. And that was my first first introduction to A, I was hunting in Australia and B, to goat hunting. Um, and just sitting there next to this creek, um, having this huge expanse of, of open areas available to you that you could just explore and it was peaceful. Whereas the, the, the shooting back in the UK, you know, was, was generally just a high seat on a, uh, on an evening or morning. Um, quite often you'd have a walker walking behind you on the, on the track or a horse rider coming up on the, on the bridleway. It didn't, it didn't have that, that, that expanse to it, that wide open spaces that, that mm. I'd grown up with. Um, and I had a, you know, amazing time there at Mudgee on that trip. Um, went back to the UK and, uh, you know, look, I had an amazing trip to Australia um, and went back to to the UK and that was it. You know, I was I was newly married at that time and we decided that at that point we were going to move to Australia. It took us a few years, but um, we eventually got here. Um, but before moving to Australia, I started, I, I joined the ADA straight after uh, my trip to Australia. So um, my mate Louie was a member of the ADA. Um, so I've been a member of the ADA since I think 2007. Um, didn't move to Australia until 2014. So, um, but you know, they used to post me the newsletter back when it was just a little printed booklet. I used to get the monthly newsletter or quarterly newsletter, I think, at that time. And you know, I really got to read about the stories and the experiences of you know hunting sambar and you know red deer and goats and pigs and all that. And it really just you know got me really excited about moving out here. Um, and once once we got our visa and we were we were in the process of moving. Of, of preparing to move out here, I started posting on, you know, some of the Facebook groups about, you know, what gear do I need? What, you know, what are the recommended optics from a gear point of view and all that? And it was actually Mark here who responded um, and actually, you know, answered a few of my questions, added me as a friend on Facebook and sent me a few private messages about, you know, this is the, this is the type of hunting, this is the type of gear that you need. You know, European hunting is very different to Australian hunting. You know, we had, very large, you know, objective lens scopes for for that last light hunting because that's what we were doing. You needed as much light gathering as you could. You know, we had I had a good Swarovski, which I know Mark's come around to, but um, I had a you know really good Swarovski scope. Um, and but it, it wasn't suited to to Australian conditions. And and Mark was the one who really, you know, gave me that advice about what gear to use. And you know that's why I highly recommend anyone getting into into hunting to to you know watch the gear videos that you guys have put up i think those are really good videos on on the podcast um i think they really give a good insight into you know the gear that's required for especially state forest hunting um mm -hmm. because for me i had no no experience of hunting public land i'd never never done that before um i'd only ever hunted high seats and 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 africa's you know slightly different you know generally you, you have a three to nine by 40 and that that'll cover you for anything um but and i think that you know that's a pretty good pretty good scope choice for um for, the, for state forest hunting but in the uk you wouldn't have a three to nine by 40 because you know the 40 mil lens is not going to be enough for that light gathering for that last light hunting you need you know nice big 56 mil where that's what i had was the swarovski 8 by 56 fixed fixed power just for that really good light gathering but i don't think that would work in the pelliga so it was mark's advice really that you'd get I that thought, shimmer wouldn't you that's sort of... <laughs> you'd get blind <laughs> your eyes would burn out of your head <laughs> Um, look, I was going to bring that scope with me and I decided to sell it and kicking myself a little bit now because it's that they cost an absolute fortune, but mm. it would never have worked. Um, it just wasn't the mm. right type of scope. You but, would have got it on top of something on your, on your trip to the Southern Alps at some point. Would have been good from, from ridge to ridge shooting, I reckon. 
Well, I did buy a Swarovski, but it is only a what's the name? Uh, one one to twenty, you know, it's a twenty-four mil front objective. <laughs> I went the smallest one they had. So, um, yeah, but that's very true. You know, the the, the English. I was a bit, uh, as I said, you know, big big objective lenses. Um, they don't like thirty cals over there. They're you know, they they, they lots of much more what you might um, associate with a rifle that you're going to shoot from a, a seated supported position. So they're not, they don't generally hunt with what, what, what we would call just a normal hunting rifle, a carry-on rifle, because you're not doing that. Some There is some stalking, but the vast majority of it is shooting. And even when they stalk, I think they legally have to shoot off sticks or something like that, or there is there is a some consideration about using sticks as well. So even if you are stalking, as they call it, you'll be shooting off sticks. Yeah, there's no. I don't believe there's a legal requirement, but it's certainly recommended. Yeah. Um, you know, I used to. I I had a thirty cal at a three hundred eight with the suppressor on. Makes a big difference. You know, a lot of the estates these days um, demand that you have a suppressor just so you mm. don't annoy the neighbours. Um, and they work well, not just from a annoying the neighbours perspective, but you know, saving your ears. Um, it makes a huge difference yeah. if you show, fire a thirty cal with, without a suppressor, which we most of us probably do these days. Um, but one with the suppressor, it makes a big difference. Um, and the argument that they had there was really around from a health and safety perspective. So health and safety is a, is a huge, a huge issue in in the UK. And and they argued the point that well, you know, how many people are going deaf? What a what is the 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 impact to the public health system for all these people getting hearing hearing aids and losing losing their hearing through shooting um, if we just put suppressors on them um, then we're probably going to reduce that so that became the norm um, you know it still had to be it had to be on your firearms license that you but it was very it was very rare to see a firearm a rifle with sorry without a suppressor pretty much everyone has one. Um, mm and i got used to shooting one and yeah it adds to the weight but then you're not carrying it around most of the time you know you're walking to a high seat and climbing into it and quite often you could you know that'd be 100 yards 200 yards and you're, you're climbing into the high seat um so to have a heavy rifle with a big suppressor on the end of it is, is is not really an issue um and but anyway um moved to australia we arrived here in 2014 um Tried to apply for my firearms license straight away, but it wasn't what well, didn't happen because my landlord refused to uh, accept the installation of a safe. So I had to wait until we purchased our first property. But as soon as that happened, um, applied for my firearms license, did my my safety course through the ADA out there at at, at Belmont, um, and I could I could use my my RPL, my recognition of prior learning from my previous certificates, etc. That I could get through, I had to do that, obviously the, the legal aspects of it, but I could get through the, you know, the theory pieces and the practical shooting pieces. I didn't have to do those because I had that, that recognition from, from my previous learning um, and applied for my first rifle, which Mark put me on to Scott at, at Queensland Gun Exchange to, um, to get me my first rifle, um, did me a good deal. And I've still got that rifle, it's still my favorite rifle at the moment, um, obviously added to it, but that's a 30 cal to a nice Tika. 308, I think it's perfect for the, the shooting that we do here in Southeast Queensland. Um, I've shot red deer with it, pigs with it, goats with it. Um, it's it's more than sufficient for, it covers everything basically. Um, mm. But once I arrived, obviously I've been a member of the ADA for um, for a number of years, but you know went to a few branch meetings, um, met a few people, um, joined the first, well, one of the trips down to Nundal, 
meet yourself, Ian, down there. Um, was that your first trip? That was my first trip, that first one, when I came and down with never, Pierre. And you've never come back. We must have scared you off. No, I've been I've been twice, both times. Um, you've, you've been there, we've seen you there. I haven't been since. Um, but, yeah, that was the, the first one we did was when I met yourself. Um, that wasn't the one when you shot that, that buck that you talked about in that episode. It was the, the following year, uh, I think, that you got that one. Yep. Yeah. Um, with the big with the big pig um that was the second year um but look every time i've been to nundal i've seen deer i haven't shot one there yet but i've seen them um the the first trip i did there was with um pierre who you'll you'll probably remember he was new to hunting he'd been a shooter but he had never hunted before um so it was more of a blind leading the blind i guess because i'd never done a state that was my first state forest hunts um I'd, i'd shot fellow deer before i've shot plenty fellow deer but i've never shot them in australia before i've never hunted them mm-hmm. in the state forest before so you know there was a bit of a blind leading the blind it was a an, an eye-opener for both of us but we saw deer um pierre had a couple of opportunities on on some but he was inexperienced and it was just really learning from those who'd been there a few times so adrian and yourself who'd been there and and kind of gave us a few pointers and and recommendations so it was really just absorbing from from people and and just learning um and and from that you was actually you ian who put us onto the the mentor hunts at um at ballandine um went down for that one managed to get pierre his first year with with ash proud um mm. ash and myself have become pretty good mates actually we, we we chat all the time and trying to shoot whenever we can so you know i've met through the ada i've met some really good people i've met mark i've met yourself ash um so it's really about you know the, the people and the social aspect, which is what I was missing from that from that UK shooting was yes I made some friends, but you didn't at the end of the day you didn't all stand around the fire or sit around the fire with a cold beer or a rum or whatever is your tool of choice and and talk about experiences and talk about hunting and you know it was it was what I was looking for what I wanted was that 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 huge open area to be able to hunt, um, to have the, you know, freedom as it is to, to explore that area and, and to have that access because in the UK, it's all private land. There's no public land hunting. Um, there's none of that. Even South Africa is all public land, uh, sorry, private land. It's I was all... going to ask you that, whether it was all private, private, all private land over there. Must have been fence. an enormous change to come here and, and find public land access and, you know, really be able to book and just go and explore and figure it out for yourself. That's, that's a big change. Absolutely. So when you think of, you know, public land, you think US, you think of the tag system um, that they've got. Um, but that our license, it's 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 really is a, a fantastic program. You know, it gives you the opportunity to explore some really great areas of Australia. Like I, I I'd never been to Nundal. I'd never even heard of Nundal before, before I, you know, heard about the was told about the the ADA trip down to Nundal State Forest. And and through that I've been through some awesome little towns, you know, places that I probably would never have explored. Um, so to have access and the availability of those places to be able to go and hunt, uh, it, it's it's amazing. Uh, something that mm. I wish we had here in Queensland. Um, but you know the the, the Nundal trip was great. The, the trip down to Valentine Station was was awesome. Was a, a mental hunt. Got my first Australian fallow deer. Um, although I'd shot them before. Um, you know I've shot fallow deer even in South Africa. They're not native, but I've shot one there. I've shot a nice big buck. Um, so I've shot fallow deer in three different countries, but to be able to shoot one here in Australia, which w- was awesome, was a great experience. Um, but obviously that's on private land. Um, but it was actually in the conversations that we had around that campfire in Nundal, where we spoke about the Pilliga and, 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 and hunting, hunting goats in the Pilliga. Adrian was talking about, you know, the ADA trips that they do out there in the middle of summer when it's stinking hot, they, they drive yeah. down and 
Um, and that that really got my you know got me got me interested. I like a challenge. Um, I like exploring new areas. And so, spoke to Mark, and Mark gave me some pointers on where to go to the Pilliga and what to do and what you know the, where to camp and you know go to Swages Bore and set up camp here and look in these areas and all that. So, I think it was later that year. That probably would have been four years ago. Um, we did a did my first trip out to the Pilliga, just a, a quick three three or four night. I think it was a three night trip. That's the Pilliga was October. It was sort of on that cusp of getting pretty warm. Um, but it was, you know, my first trip out to the Pilliga. And I just remember driving through when you get there to Moree and all those places. It's just flat as anything. Mm. Um, and there's just, it's it's so, it just seems so boring. You don't see how anything could be out there. And then you leave Narrabri and you, you, you start driving down that, 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 what is that the new highway and and all of a sudden you just you hit that tree line and it just and you get that soil. feeling and yeah, you're here and, <laughs> and you hit, you hit that red soil and you you turn off the new highway onto Pilliger Forest Way and it's suddenly just this this red soil with the forest on on either side and I remember taking a photo and I put it up on Facebook and Mike replied straight away saying I know exactly where you are um, it, it's but it, it's an incredible place that that the, the Pilliga. Um, it's just this huge expanse, and you can sit in the middle of that forest, and you just think there's nowhere, there's no one else anywhere near me. Um, I'm in the middle of nowhere. I've got all this land that's available to me, and I can actually walk around with a firearm and um, you know feel free. I suppose um, you know when you think of of hunting in the US and they get access to all these public lands. If you listen to, you know, the media to podcasts and things like that, they're always talking about access and land access and public land. The fact that we actually have that available to us, um, it's something that we should not take for granted. It's, 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 it's really is a, an asset and we need to, we need to protect that and not do, you know, stupid things and, and get that taken away from us. You, you did right. I, um, I spent a lot of my time as a as a hunter in Australia. In, in fact, the majority of my hunting life has been in Australia. Um, so I moved over here as a late teenager. But I I heard someone say and recently in a in a podcast, and I can't even remember which one it was, but they said um, it's it amazes them how many people in Australia want to uh, plan their next overseas trip, their next trip to Alaska or to New Mexico or to New Zealand or somewhere else. And they've really even scratched the surface of what's available here. Um, and pro- it's probably only been in the last, probably over this COVID period that I've sat down and gone, all right, well, there's buffalo up north and there's scrub bulls and there's, you know, Bantang. And, mm-hmm. you know, you can you can, you can can really chase a lot of the South Pacific, what do they call it? The South Pacific, however many are in the number, 12 mm-hmm. or whatever it is, I'll get that wrong. Um, but the, the volume of large game animals that you can chase here, there's so many in Australia. Um, so I'm really now focusing on that. I've, I've decided that, you know, you can spend a lot of money going to New Zealand. Well, you don't spend a heap of money going to New Zealand, but you can spend a lot a lot more money than you would just going down to South Australia or, you know, chasing a, a, a Tassie fellow, um, you know, there's rooster up north, things like that. And, and that's really something that I'll focus on. But the, the opportunities here are fantastic. They really are. Absolutely. And I'm, yeah, I mean, the the big thing about that is I suppose up north is, you know, in, in the territory is probably a bit different, but the number of, of species that you can hunt on public land, you know, Mark and I were planning a trip down to Victoria um, this year. Unfortunately, COVID, you know, meant that we couldn't do that. Um, we looked at going out to New South Wales and again, COVID stopped that. 
Um, so as you say, the opportunities are here. And, you know, it's even if you're targeting the same species, it's targeting a species in a different area, a different environment, mm. you know, really challenging yourself. You go to Nandal and you're hunting some of those, you know, steep gullies looking for 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 fallow. And then as you say, you go down to Tassie or you go to to other areas of New South Wales where, you know, there's some some good fallow hunting, but they're all different. It's all mm. different environment, it's all different access, it's all different. It, it's a completely different hunt, but we have the, the availability of that land to to choose from. You know, and it's it, you can you can choose to make the most of it, or you can choose to go overseas. And I mean, I've obviously I've hunted in South Africa, I've hunted in um, in the UK, I've been out to Canada. I didn't do a specific trip to Canada to hunt. I was out there visiting my mate Louis, who actually lives in Canada now, and he had a uh, an elk tag, and he said, "Well, let's go out for a day." Um, he lives in in Calgary, and we went up into the Rockies chasing chasing elk. And you know, I didn't have a tag; I wasn't allowed to carry a rifle, but I had a pack on on my back in case we shot something that I had to pack out. And it was minus seventeen degrees, and up we went into the Rockies chasing elk. Um, unfortunately, we didn't we didn't get one. We saw you know some water, we saw some mule deer, but you know that was that was public land hunting in Canada. That was my, my experience. That was the first time I'd ever been on public land. Um, and just to be able to have that freedom to say, well, mm. I'm going to go to this place and just be able to walk onto that, onto that property or that block of land and, and be able to just to do that. You're not trespassing. You're not, you know, you're not trespassing on someone's land. The, the coppers are going to come and arrest you. you, you you're, you're entitled to be on that land. Um, it, it's, it's a right for you to be on that land um, and to have access to that. You know, you're driving around, the Pilliger or Nundal, and you have, you know, you're allowed to be there. You're allowed to have a firearm to be to be driving around and, and have access. And, you know, we need to be responsible, you know, we need to, you know, do the right thing. But to have that privilege, um, to have that access um, is something we shouldn't take for granted. Um, mm. And, you know, I remember we were in the Pilliger on, on, our, on our recent trip just late last year, um, and we were driving around and, it was it was Darcy who said um, he said this is the closest thing you'll get to to the hunting that people have in America the fact that we can just be driving around looking for game um, and be in the middle of nowhere with no one around us and it's you know he says I'll I'll, I'll probably never get to hunt America but I get to do this and and he loved it absolutely loved it um, so yeah something we shouldn't take for granted uh, something we need to to fight to to protect. Look, I, I can't, I can't, I, I couldn't agree more, and I think that gives us a good lead in to actually talk a little bit more in detail about the Pilliga and um, that last trip we put together down there. So that was um, let, so just for 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 people listening, uh, what was it? I can't even think. Was it last October? Was it Dece December? First week of December. December. So I hunt Pilliga with the crew that I've hunted. 10 years with down there and one of them happened to not be able to make it and I know I know Jono was keen to come along so as soon as I said oh look we've got a space you, you know basically dropped everything and said sure so we were going down I think we went down for six five or six days um, mm -hmm. so we usually hunt fairly a lengthy period of there it's worth it because um, the drive and you, when you're there you want to be in there and immersed in there so we um, so we went down and we Ended up camping at our usual spot, which is Swayze's Ball. We've actually found a new camping area a little bit closer to the road that we want to try next time. Um, so we went down there for a five, six-day goat hunt. So um, I'm going to throw it over to you, John, John, and tell us about that. 
Yeah, well, look, I was um, very grateful to to crack the nod for that invite. Um, we've been, you know, talking a few times about about trips and and going away. And I'd done one previous trip to the to the Pilliger and used some of your the, the knowledge that you'd gained over you know those ten years of trips that you've done to to be pretty successful. Um, but yeah, to get you know to to crack the nod and get the invite, I was very grateful. Um, but it was. It was a good trip. Um, you know, it's a, it's an awesome drive when you when you're leaving Moree and on that section and it's just flat and it's there's nothing there. And as I said earlier, you you hit the forest and you hit that red dirt and it's it's a long drive. It's the middle of nowhere. Swages Boar is, you know, it's you, you drive down the track and it's just keeps going and going. You and keep going. driving, don't you? Just keep going. <laughs> I think it's about thirty-five k off the highway. Yeah. yeah. But yeah. when you when you look at it, you know, you've got you're camping in the middle of you know, 300,000, I think we had 300,000 acres available to us on that trip um, with the, you know, some of the exclusions. It's just this huge expanse um, and there's just no one else around. I don't think we saw, apart from we had a visit to camp one night, we didn't, we didn't see anyone else really, apart from maybe the, the old Santos truck driving around. We didn't really see anyone else and we had, you know, this whole area to ourselves, but it's just, it's an amazing area. It's, it's it it seems when you first drive in there that there it's it's unassuming that there's just nothing to it but once you get closer to it and you you know i always find it takes you a, a couple of days to to sort of get your your eyes and ears used to the area you know you, you need to adapt to it because everything's different um and every road you drive down is different you know you think it's it's this flat area but it's not it's there's just these these little creeks and gullies everywhere that's um, you know these sandy little gullies that, that that you can follow, and there's the, the 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 trees change. You can have some pines, you can have some, you know, native native forest blocks, native native tree blocks. Um, it's 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 a it's a very difficult place to explain. Um, you know, you you've you've got this this huge area um, available to you, and you're driving down the road, and it's just this the sandy track. And all of a sudden you see a goat pop out or lying in the sand under a tree and it's all systems go. And, um, you know, you try and you try and get into the, these goats and sometimes you do, sometimes you don't. But um, it's just something when you're driving along there, you just never know what's going to happen. You know, it's 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 just it's it's never the same. Um, you know, we were there when we first arrived on our trip, Mark, it was very wet. Um, that had quite yeah, a few storms true. come through and we saw very few animals. You know, the, we, we saw a few, you know, a few tracks everywhere, but. Um, if you saw a goat, there was one or two. They weren't grouped together. There was no mobs. They were they were very very much dispersed. Um, they didn't have to travel anywhere because there was water on the ground everywhere. So you know they could. It's not like they were travelling to get water. Um, so we were really struggling in those first few days. It was very wet. There was puddles everywhere. Um, and then as the week progressed, it warmed up and it got drier. And all of a sudden, the goats started mobbing up again, and we started seeing huge numbers. You know, we were driving for for an hour, and you wouldn't see a single goat uh, on day one. But by day four or five, you'd be driving straight out of Swage's bore, and there'd be a mob of goats heading into the into the bore to come for a drink. So, it's a place where it can just change. Um, you know, within a day, one day to the other, it can just change. Um, I think no two days are ever the same there. Um, and one 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 k to the other is different um you know you can come out of the bore and and head right and it's it's very sandy and it's there's just there's nothing there it's a few forestry plantations and that's it you head left and it's it's quite rocky and it's it's quite thick um and then you 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 know you, you come down the track and all of a sudden you, there's a a drop down into into a creek um and some of the creeks you can see contain a lot of water you wouldn't think there's much water in that area but 
that one creek that's that's down down there can you know all those little feeder creeks flow into it and it just seems to gather all that water and and, and hit south um and you know we had trees that knocked over and it was it was awesome to walk those 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 bigger creeks um looking for for goats or pigs um and sometimes you find them i know mark got stuck into them but um it was was awesome just to follow the creek line and where you'd find a bit of water you'd, you'd generally find some sort of game um whether it was an emu or whether it was a kangaroo or a wallaby there was always something some some sort of life form it's that forest is just it's so big it's so vast um it just contains so much life um and whilst you might think that this area is you know when you when you go down for instance you go down to the to the salt caves and you climb the fire tower and you you stand up there and you look out and it just seems flat and unassuming when it's not it's 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 so big and so vast that it just contains so much so much variety of of, of wildlife um that it's just it's it's an amazing place to be um you know we explored the far eastern side which i'd never been down that way before um on on sort of on the border with the, the agricultural side and that was very different again you know a lot of huge rocky outcrops um i remember and i know mark touched on this one i can see him smirking already um you know we we're driving up this up this this hill and mark said did i ever tell you that that goats like rocks and <laughs> Over there, some rocks, and I was like, "Let's go and have a look." So we 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 hopped out of the truck, and we there's this huge sort of rocky outcrop, and we, you know we're walking around it, and all of a sudden the whole um the whole side of the the outcrop just explodes with goats, and Mark starts shooting and takes one. I took a shot and almost blew Mark's eardrum out because he was standing next to me. Um, but it was yeah, yeah we you could hear goats across this whole rocky outcrop and you know mark was like you can hear them up there run up that way so i ran to the other side of the, the rocky outcrop and there was another mob that was living on that side and had a um you know they they, they took off actually almost up this this full vertical face um and i took a shot at a, a nice belly and he came tumbling down tunning down the, the, the rock face and it kind of made me think of you know hunting marco polo sheep or something like that seeing this this big billy up on this vertical rock rock face come tumbling down so uh, you know a bit of excitement it was it was awesome um it, that's something that'll probably stick with me for the rest of my life that experience that we had on that that rocky outcrop but it 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 kind of made you um or made us change our hunting technique a little bit as well whereas before we were driving around just sort of looking for goats we started seeking out those those rocky outcrops and you know looking at the maps um trying to understand you know well you can see the the, the track does a big you know sharp turn like this maybe that's a big rocky outcrop let's go and explore that one so you know it changed our, our, our hunting tactics a little bit myself and Darcy went out and and sort of sought out those those rocky outcrops and you know what mark says is goats love rocks they certainly do because you could see you know the goat sign everywhere on some of those rocky outcrops so it just shows you that you need to be versatile you need to change your hunting tactics driving around just wasn't doing it the the, the, the goats weren't um weren't mopped up and they weren't having to walk around looking for water they were you know not not having to travel far to get that water so you had to go looking for them and we trained our tactics and it worked and as that week progressed things dried up and um you know the goats started moving and we started getting you know started getting more goats um so it's it's a place where you can't be you can't have a single strategy you've got to change that strategy according to the conditions and you know i've i'm not an, a very experienced pelican hunter i've only been there twice and and i think both trips are completely different um, I think you can't go in with a single, as I said, a single strategy. You've got to be prepared to 
to understand what's going on in the conditions um, and adapt. Um, one, it, it shows you that one day to the next can be different. We got there and it was wet and there weren't many goats. You know, you had to go really looking for them. Uh, they're there. They're certainly there. It's just they weren't moving. So we weren't bumping into them. It's such a big block of land that if you're if you're trying to drive around look for them, um, there could be you know there could be anywhere. Whereas by the end of that week, conditions were drying up, and we started seeing them because they were moving. So you've got to you've got to adapt to the conditions. Um, you know, it was I'll, my first trip that I did there was October. It was you know on that on on that sort of um, cusp of changing from from spring to to summer. So it was getting warm, but it was still the cooler nights. Um, whereas we went there in December, it was very very hot, very very dusty um, as the week got on. Um, but you've just got to be adaptable. You've really got to read the conditions um, and and adapt your hunting techniques accordingly. You know, think where what are the goats doing? Where are they? Why am I not seeing them around the water? You know, we sat by by some of those dams and there was just nothing happening because they didn't need to come to the dams. Whereas on Mark's previous trip, there was no water around, so they had to come for a drink. So you've got to really read the conditions, read what's going on at that time. You know, is is there much water on the ground? Is 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 there not? If they're not, focus on the water holes. So, and you know, we tried that at the beginning of the week and it didn't work for us. So we had to change our tactics. We had to we had to start walking around, start driving around, cover some ground. It's such a huge piece of land that you've really got to be prepared to cover um, a lot of ground to find to try and find some sign, you know, look at the creek beds, are the goats moving through those creek beds? If they are, maybe go for a walk. You know, I remember my first trip that I did, it was very dry. There wasn't much water around. And one of Mark's tips was find a creek bed. If you see some sign, follow it. And I did that, walked up a creek bed for probably a K and they're in the middle of dusting themselves and and playing around was a, was a mob of goats. So you've really got to, um, you've got to adjust to the, to the conditions. So, so you you saw you saw goats around that rocky outcrop. That's a given. That's like fallow deer and the native mark uh, mm-hmm. goats and rocks. That's just what yeah. happens. Um, you've um, you've got the the obvious tactic of water, which is you know pretty well known for um, for people that are chasing animals in Australia in dry conditions. Um, um, you've wanted up a creek bed, and, and what the, you were saying that the goats have they're dusting themselves so they're dust bathing rather than rather than chasing water necessarily is this just this is a nice cool spot up the creek that they've found that they're just hanging out and playing is that what you found yeah absolutely so in the heat of the day they're looking for somewhere cool and you know they're yeah. kicking up that that sand under the trees in the creek bed the sand's nice and soft to try to get the cooler to... stuff what, what what other so that's 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 a different one i hadn't really thought too much about and i'm the same i've been to the pillager once I led a group of people to the Pilliger and I had never been there. Um, that's just what we do as a, as a branch. We just pick somewhere to go and off we go and we figure it out as we go. It was pretty successful as well. Um, probably went in a time where it was easy to spot the goats because they were mobbed up due to the water. But are there are there other interesting tactics like that? I'm follow, following sign, that, that makes a lot of sense. Finding them in those cool areas makes a lot of sense. Where else would you find them? Is there anything else? Oh, from my experience, so obviously you've got the water one, which you've mentioned, the, the, those those creek beds, um, and then just really you've got to, from from a feed perspective, there's nowhere in particular that I've noticed it, but um, really just those 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 sandy creek beds for me was was the main ones. If you can if you can, I know on this trip we 
we found um, we found water, which is obviously important for those animals. But from there, what we did is we followed the, the, the their, their sign, their tracks, following from there because they 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 tend to flow from water to water. Um, they're not potentially coming into mm. the same the same same water all the time. They've 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 got a, a track that they follow. Um, so we were following those tracks through. Um, and getting good sign and following them. So just trying to find those different those different water water courses that they're actually they're actually coming in to drink on. They're fairly habitual then. Same yeah, route through 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 the day. Yeah. Look, like any animal, they're gonna you know they're they're very mindful of energy expenditure. So mm. they're not gonna walk away from water to to, to find other water, but they do. Because they're browsing animals as well. They, nat, you know, if you watch them in action, they they slowly move as they browse. So, with the the particular trip that uh, John and I went on, when we were going down, they actually were having some significant storms, and Darcy and and and, and Simon, good good mates, were already there, and they actually stayed up held up in Narrabri as one of the big storms rolled through and when we got there we it was obvious that a significant amount of water had gone through for instance all the creek beds were you know bowling green smooth and as John I said some of the big creeks that fed in that the little ones feed into there was massive log jams and things like that so the water would have been you know phenomenal going through there so the place was full of water and I'd been I'd hunted there the year before, say, right at the very apex of the drought, and you know, there was no water everywhere, and so you only saw goats on dams. So, because they were just basically staying close to the water supply. So, we 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 started off the week just exploring, and you know, and um, there was a day where it really turned, and that day was when we went over to the eastern side of Pilgar East. So it crossed the Newell and went on to the eastern side. And we were right up against the boundary line along there. And as I said, the, the famous, that I ever tell you, goes like rocks. That's where we saw it. And I don't mean rocks. This is like an escarpment. I said, mm. and sure enough, literally got pulled the truck up, got ready, you know, and said, just take it easy. Walked around. There they are. They're just there on the escarpment. So we got in on I, I, I say, John, I got a bit rock crazy then. <laughs> I was basically scanning the map for every rock that, you know, like basically kicking over pebbles, see if there was a going up. <laughs> but we kept going. And look, and, and that day, Dar Darcy and Simon got onto Gates too. And in fact, when we met up, and the way that's how we hunt, we met up during the day. You know, Simon had a gate and he went, Look at this. And I said, Oh, well, have a look at this one. So there's. There was a bit of a competition there. And, and then we saw goats almost straight away that afternoon. And then we moved into another area where the last time there'd been very, very good sign of goats, but strange enough, there was none this time. So we were back over onto, you know, the, the Swages Boar part of, of the, the Pilliga. And when we were looking at those, you know, sign and creek beds, so most of the creeks, um, still had a bit of pool of water in very small spaces, but the sand was very smooth and still very wet. So there was moisture very close to the ground. And with sign, what we were doing was we were making a calculated guess at the at the the quality, the volume, and the freshness of sign because there was sign everywhere because everything was smooth. So any tracks now were very clear for you. So what we were literally doing was driving along. And when you come to one of those tiny little washouts, look down, 
and go, okay, there's been gates here. What is it? Uh, that's probably a day old. Keep moving. Until Simon, and I was hunting with Simon on the time, it was a very, very hot day. Um, that's when the heat really changed. Um, it was starting to dry out, and we just saw, you know, bucket loads of sign on this, on this uh, where the road crossed the creek. You, they were, there is a lot of goats here. So we got ourselves ready, you know. They're there, don't need to rush, just got ourselves ready and started walking. And um, the first part, actually, when I came around the, the, the corner, a large tree had fallen into the creek and the amount of pig sign around that tree, I thought they're right here. You know, and I thought they're probably underneath that tree. I'm about to walk into them and they're going to bust out. But they'd moved off. But the, so the pigs had literally come down and created a nest under this fallen tree in the creek bed because it's shady and the, and the, the, the sand was still wet. So that was a perfect you know, wallowing situation with the pigs. We kept moving up that creek bed and eventually, you know, just kept following this huge amount of traffic tracks. And eventually we, we, we caught up to the, the animals making the tracks. And um, I think we rolled eight that, that day. That was just, we were just amongst them. And um, so that, that was a really big, you know, we'd gone from nothing to the to two days of goats, goats, goats. And then, uh, it continued on, and even on the last day, as we were leaving, you know, we saw more goats. Mm. So, and that was really that turning the 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 groundwater had dried up or had become less, you know, less plentiful. So the goats were going back to, uh, I suppose, what you might call a, a dry weather habit, you know, getting moving around, looking looking for water, moving towards water. So and. Uh, Simon went down there later that year when some significant rain came through that area again and actually experienced a little bit of flooding. So, again, very, very difficult situations because the animals just don't need to move. And, mm -hmm. you know, they don't need to go to a dam. They just need to go to the side of a track in the drain where there's, you know, there's a puddle. So that's that tends to happen a lot. Interesting. So um, if I ask you a different question then, Jono, um, your first experience, uh, you said you've been twice, but your first experience, what did you get wrong? What did, what did you expect to show up and see and, and what were you not prepared for? I think probably the, the first point is the vastness of the place is, is, is the amount of ground that you've got to cover um, in a day um you know it's it's just such a big area and it takes you such a long time to get from point a to point b you know you'll you you look at the map and you you see a venza and i think that is a great mapping system and you think oh well i'm gonna go and hunt in this area this looks this good to me but it takes you over an hour to get there i think that's mm -hmm. That's, that's probably the first thing is I underestimated the size of the place. Um, you know, you think, oh, I'm going to pop over to the salt caves. Well, it takes you, you know, an hour and 20 minutes to get down to the salt caves. Um, it's it's really the vastness of the place. Um, that that I, I definitely underestimated that. Um, the, the, the second point was probably the, you, the, 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 the dust. The dust gets in everything and you need to be prepared for it. For instance, you know, I, I, I saw a goat and I went, decided to go for a a, a stalk and was belly crawling and I had a barno full of, I went like I had to pick up my barnos and put them up to my face and they were, they were, they were full of sand. Um, so yeah, be prepared for dust to get into everything. That that red yeah. dust just, and you know, they're, they're fine, a, good, isn't it? 
Oh yeah, it just gets into everything. Um, but yeah, I like to go into an area, and you know, I don't have. I try to keep my expectations not low, but I like to keep them open. Um, I like to really adapt to the area, and but but for me, it's it's the size of the place, um, and in some areas it can be very dense, and you know you can't you can't go where you want to go. You've got to follow the tracks, uh, or you've got to follow the creeks. Um, but you really need to be prepared for anything. You know, you can come around a, around a corner, as Mark said, in, in a creek, or you come around a corner in the street uh, in, in one of the, the, the tracks and there's goats. Um, you need to be ready. You need to be prepared. Um, and I guess there's it's 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 a it's a it's an awesome place to be. Fantastic. Um, but you need, just need to you need to have an open mind and you need to change your tactics according to the conditions. Um, that that's probably the, you know the the main thing to be is really just to keep um an open mind and 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 read the conditions um and then adjust your tactics accordingly so then moving from your first trip to your second trip what did you then change and i don't necessarily mean the way you hunted it but did you have any gear changes did you go away and think about things that weren't optimal for those environments i mean you've brought your uk hunting kit with you and you've rocked up to the pillager i can only think about a few things that might have gone wrong uh, with equipment, but like, or did it adapt? Like, tell me, tell me about that. Oh, look, I was, I, was, I was fortunate to have the, you know, on the, especially on that second on on the second trip to have to have Mark as that mentor, and I think having someone who's familiar with the area, who's been before, is a huge advantage to actually, um, who's 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 gained the experience of multiple trips to to understand what's required, like. You know, I, I was talking about the the vastness of of the place and the distances you need to travel, like. You, you look on a map and you think, oh, I'll just pop to town for some fuel. I don't need much food or I don't need that much water. It's 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 a huge trek to get into into Narrabri to to stock up. So and I know on that on that first trip, for instance, we, you know, we didn't take much fuel in with us. We didn't take much food or water. Um, we were we were significantly underprepared um, and didn't really accept or understand that the, the the distances you had to travel where mark was saying you know no you know getting into towns it's a big operation let's take fuel let's take water let's take food make sure you're prepared for for being in that forest for being there for an extended period of time and 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 being able to you know be be self-sustaining that that's, that's probably the biggest takeaway for me you know if, I'd hunted Nundal. I was, um, you know, Nundal and Pilliga are, are completely different beasts. You know, the Nundal's mm. very, very wet um, and very cold, whereas the Pilliga is very hot um, and dry. I know in, in winter, Mark was saying they were freezing on one, on the one trip they did there in the winter. So you need to be prepared for any condition. You know, you can have um, a storm come through and you can get flooded. Um, I know on the first trip that we did, we had a windstorm camp come through and in the middle of the in the middle of the forest you could hear it come rolling through and it sounded like thunder but it was actually wind coming rolling through the thunder and you know tore our camp to pieces so you really need to be prepared um but having that guidance and and of, of an experienced you know visitor to to the forest really really helped um you know i took took advice from mark on what what gear to take he said it's going to be hot it's going to be um you know we've got the potential for storms make sure you got some some winter gear but make sure you've got sufficient food sufficient water if you don't we'll make sure that amongst us we do um you know that's why you you, you travel as a crew you've got that you know you've got the support of, of everyone um so it was really good having that that sort of camp that we had um, you know, there was four of us. We had multiple vehicles. We had food. Everyone sort of shared um, 
the you know the supplies that were available to make sure that that no one was ever caught short and i think you know listening to the the gear podcast that you guys put together um especially for the you know pelica what to take you know fuel water make sure you're prepared um make sure you're prepared for 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 the heat you got adequate sun protection um and sufficient water that, that's probably the biggest takeaway for me was really just to be prepared to understand what you could face um and be prepared for for whatever gets you know the pillar gets throws at you good answer. Yeah, it's, it's a good point i think if i remember because the just to explain we go those listening we go in is what we call a crew so usually i hunt with three other people and I've, I've hunted there on a number of occasions with them we usually take three vehicles um so there's always a vehicle in camp um and that the idea is that you know there's actually a recovery vehicle if you if need be but having that that selection of vehicles and ha having hunted together for a number of times we've all got kind of roles so you know one guy will take you know the kitchen and, and so on and so forth which we share but you know we also share fuel so we usually have around 100 litres of fuel in camp and equal number of water so we use have uh, and that's spread over you know from drinking bottles to walk or, or what you know what we call working water so darcy's got you know a, a little 40 liter um working water tank reservoir on his car so we we just have that and what that makes is in all honesty it means longer time hunting less time doing stuff that gets in the way of hunting so when we go for instance over to the far side on the day we went over you know we left not long after dawn and we got back you know on dusk it was a big long day but you know we were completely comfortable we you know we but we took two vehicles we said this is where we're going to meet up this is what if you don't meet up this is what's going to what we'll do um, we had plenty of fuel fuel in the cars we had plenty of fuel uh, sorry water in the cars and, and food so all that kind of can sound a little um you know if you're used to hunting something like private land where you know you're staying in a shearing shed in, or something like that it can sound a little bit sound a little bit too much but what all that means is you're spending more time looking for game because you're not worrying about oh okay hang on i'm a bit low on fuel what are we going to do um having those having that fuel reserve in, in camp means that you know each morning you grab a jerry can and we move it around and top up the vehicle so you always you always run with a full tank in your vehicle same with the water and at night at camp you know having a having a a, a good set of mates around you that work well together means you know that someone will say okay i'm cooking tonight and it just makes for a very very enjoyable trip away and i always regard it as um you know average joe safaris that's what it is that's what we do we're average joe safaris and the idea is hunt hunt hard during the day get back enjoy yourself at camp and um repeat until you run out of time you have to go home yeah and i guess you know what you're saying about that having that camp and how everyone shares resources um you know when i went my first trip to the pilliga was in october we every night we had the fire going you know we go and grab a, a fallen log and and get the fire going cook some food on the fire um we get back there you know on, on our trip in december and the forestry has has said no fires whatsoever mm. um and i'd gone prepared you know with my food that i had taken was 
I was going to cook on the fire. Um, and you look at, there's no fire ban, so that's fine. I can, you know, we'll have a fire. We'll sit around the fire, cook some food. I took a grill and, you know, everything will be fine. You get there and there's a big sign saying absolutely no fires. Um, and if it wasn't for that, the communal aspect of, of camp where, you know, someone will crank on the, 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 the gas burner because I didn't take one because I thought I'd be cooking on fire to actually cook some dinner um, meant that I didn't go hungry. So it really pays to have um, a, a good crew and a crew who, you know, are prepared to share that, you know, there's no selfishness going on that, you know, no one's going, this is mine. I'm not sharing with you. You can go hungry. Um, and that, that it was really good to have that crew. They all work well together. They were all prepared um, and willing to share, you know, that, that, that's the thing is you can't be selfish out there. You're, you're on your own in the middle of, um, you know, 300,000 acres. Um, and you need to, you know, you need to look after each other because if someone didn't have water or didn't have food out there, it's a long way to, it's a long way to town to, to try and, you know, stock up on something. So, um, and, and I guess that, that, that leads into the other thing is that, you know, you need to be prepared for whatever the forest throws at you, you know, you can go in there thinking, I'll have a fire and the forestry commission shuts that down. So um, be prepared. I think make sure that you, you know, you, you, you're going in there with what are the, what are my contingencies? If I can't have a fire, can I cook on a gas grill or can I open a can of beans and, and, you know, whatever, just be prepared. That's a, another good point because uh, for that, on that particular trip, there was a, it wasn't a fire ban. It was just, there was a no fire at yeah. all for so many months was that was it. it was just a rule and we got there and there's literally you know um, uh, tacked to a tree no fires so okay sure and, yeah, it's uh, interesting I'd, I'd run into those signs i think I, I mentioned this in another discussion i ran into the same sign going into the severn state forest and i rang the phone number on it and said you know i'm here for a week i'm at i'm at this location it looks fairly green is there any leniency and they said oh yeah, that'll be okay. Just make sure you, you build a decent firing. And now that we know that you're there, that's okay. They took my details. So if you have any problems, give us a yell. Uh, and that was in the middle of that three-month fire ban mm. um, period. They were, the, the local ranger on call was able to give you permission to do it. So it's worth making a phone call, if nothing else. Yeah, they, you, you're not going to make a phone call from Swages Boar unless, of course, you've got the system to do it. <laughs> hey, the, the old self I go goes pretty well. That's it. Uh, I tell you though, you, you, you can send a good message. We we're talking about drones before. Um, on one of the over the, the trips in New Zealand that we were on, we couldn't get um, service where we were. But you know, when you you get your iPhone or various different phones that you might have, you send a message and you watch the bar go across. And when the bar doesn't quite get there and you know it's going to shit itself, that's the end of your message. Well, that means that you've got about 25 seconds to strap that sucker to a drone and fly as high as you can, and that <laughs> message will go. There is always a way. So if we, we, we've covered it pretty strongly, but if you were, if someone was to say to John, look, I want to go hunt the pillager, what would be your advice? Be prepared. Um, you know, don't, don't go in there thinking that it's a quick trip into town. Be, you know, make sure you're self-sufficient, that you're, you've got a camp that's got sufficient fuel, sufficient water, sufficient food, um, that, you're, um, that you're prepared, not just from a, from a camp perspective, but from when you're, when you're heading out to, to look for game, be prepared for game to be around the next corner, to be in the middle of the road, to be anywhere. Um, you know, you've got to be prepared. You've got to read 
the um, the conditions. You know, if it's wet and it's it, you know that the game's not going to be moving, you've got to you know you've got to you've got to change your tactics. Um, be prepared to cover big big distances. You know, if you want to if you want to hunt the eastern side, be prepared to to spend a day down there. It's not a a quick little hop across the you know the highway. It's it's a full day and be prepared for it. Take food, take sufficient water, um, and just enjoy it it's it's a fantastic place it's it's nothing like you've ever experienced before um and just really take it all in and and appreciate that you've got this this huge amount of of land available to you um that you can go out there and enjoy it and hunt it and you're probably not going to bump into anyone else so yeah just enjoy it that's it that's yeah. good i'm looking that's forward it. to going back me. fellas i tell you since we started talking about it and mark hasn't stopped talking about it um <laughs> Uh, yeah, I'm really keen for these borders to let us go again. It'll be an interesting trip to to pull together a, a few of the the guys that have been talking about it and and get out there with a little bit of experience behind us. Maybe if we can con one of you fellas to come with us, and yeah, we'll see how we go. Yeah, well, I, I think I, I usually am there once to you know about eighteen month cycle it seems. So I'm, I'm, it's getting edgy. Mm-hmm. Um, I've hunted there most times of the year one time or another so i've hunted there a dead of winter and it was cold uh, it warmed up during the day but it was cold at night and in the morning it was frigid and like i mean you know water bottles froze and stuff like that and so it's it's proper cold um i've hunted there in january when it's like 40 degrees plus every day and that, that's hard yakka, especially if you're dragging animals out of the scrub. I remember I, the best bill I ever I ever shot, I shot at that time of year and dragging, you know, I kind of was the enthusiasm of, of the success. I, mean, I grabbed him and dragged him out and then I was I was cooked for the rest of the day. <laughs> I was done. Um, that was that was an interesting one. And, you know, and through those October and through the later on in, 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 the, in the summer and into autumn, and you see the whole place change. Um, you see, interestingly enough, you see things like uh, different birds at different times of year. I know the Pilliga has a has a worldwide reputation for, for its bird life. Mm. Um, you see different birds come into play. So you'll see, you know, you'll get different different bird calls and you'll see different things and each time you'll see a bird and i go i haven't seen that bird before and there it is when you get the and various you know the the, the cycle the various um flora there as well so the flowers and the wildflowers come up and of course then you get the difference with that the way the animals react to the heat as opposed to the colder weather as i said we were there in in really i think it was 2018 when we were there in the really bad drought and it was also the middle of winter, and that's where um, the guys found an emu that had gone into one of the to one of the dams that was now just really just a puddle, gone in, got stuck in the mud, trying to get to the water, and then froze. Huh. And they saw the sing line on the ground, and it was this emu kind of encased in a bit of muddy uh, muddy ice that either you know died of hypothermia or died of exhaustion but basically got stuck in the mud trying to get to the to the water supply and what we found that particular year again we were having a hard time locating those goats was that between a couple of the major arterials that run through the pilliga 
there's a number of dams and they were literally inside the ring of those dams moving as a mob over each day from one dam to another. So we, we figured out what was happening and so we um we on the we happened to be on the very last day, we happened to be on the right dam when they came into water and I shot a very good black billy. But that that year was the year I shot the most pigs in there ever. Um, but all of those pigs were were at the time looked like they'd been eating carrion, you know, their their hair was dried out and really bristly. They had this weird effect where they all looked like they had white stripes on their snouts. But what we realised after shooting the first one was that actually they were bare from continually digging in the dirt, trying to find food and water. They'd actually worn all the hair off the snout. So all of them had this kind of weird what looked like a white white snout, but it was actually a bald snout where they, they rubbed the, the, the hair off. The other good, if you think about going there, the, another one of the good camping spots is further on down the Pilliga Way. I think it, they call it the, the, the Mills Crossing. It's where there's a, a windmill, and obviously it was, a, it was a stockyard at once upon a time, and it's on a creek. And it's another very nice place to camp. Uh, again, no water or anything there. Like there is no, there is no facilities there at all. But a good open space. It's still got those weird, uh, one of those weird picnic tables that someone once upon a time decided to, to populate all over Pilliga. Yeah, let's put a picnic table here, 40 k's off the road. Someone will come visit. <laughs> so there's one of those there. So you've got a table to eat at, you know. And uh, so that's a really interesting place. But as I said, we found another camp spot over, over closer to the road, not on closer over closer to the road. And I think on that last trip that we had, John, I was when that um, that bottom, uh, I think they called the stockyard dam, was full of water. And that's that's, I've seen that. I think it took me six years to actually see water in there. So I always just thought it was dry, but then the one year I went down there and it had a bit of water there, and this time it was spectacular. It was like a, it was like a North Queensland lagoon. You know, you'd expected it just to be full of animals. Um, so that's also another interesting thing to see. So with yourself, now that you've conquered the Pilliga and Nundal, what's next? Where to next? I think the. Uh... The Pilliga is is always going to be on that list. Um, I know there's there's a number of other places to visit, but I think the Pilliga it holds a special place in my heart. I, I'll certainly keep going back. Um, I'd like to explore some of the the, the more southern state mm. forests, um, you know, up towards more you know more Sydney side, or even further south, and that towards the Victorian border, more of those alpine regions. Um, I think that's that's probably an area I'd like to explore um, once the borders open, of course. Um, I'd like to get down to Nundal. I haven't been down there in a few years. Um, I know it's changed a bit since since the fires have been through, but um, I'd love to do another Nundal trip. It's a different place. Mm. Yeah. And not because of the fires. It's a different place every time I go. It's a different place because it's been logged. Mm. Some of the places that, that I would frequent every single year that I go there, um, I, I drive straight past them. I don't even recognise them. Because the trees are gone, and they've they've put logging truck, um, you know, hardened roads that were just boggy tracks before. You don't even, you, you can't even recognise it. It's it's amazing, which is what what makes it such a great place. You you can't go back there and go and go hunt my normal spot because 
is gone. It doesn't yeah. exist. So, yeah, I, I love going down there. It's an easy one for me because, you know, I can hop in the car and, you know, easily be there in, you know, half a day and be set up and ready to go hunting. Um, it, it's a an extended weekend you can, you can do there. Um, you guys have got a couple more hours coming out of Brisbane, but um, it's a good one. But I agree, going down to some of those southern forests now, for me, we, we've done a few years in a row now down for Samba. Mm-hmm. Um, we take the branch down there. Um, we weren't successful this year, unfortunately. We did manage to go. Um, I can't even remember where it was. It wasn't September. It must have been a. I can't even remember. It was that that long ago now, with so much going on. But it, it was, you know, it was in the last twelve months that we took the branch down there. But um, there'd been a lot of um, culling going on in there, and in, in the valley that we went to. And, it unfortunately had a lot of attention from spotlight colours that have been employed to be in there in, in 1080, so it was slim pickings, but um, I love going down there. It's, it's a great place, and being able to get public land access in New South Wales that's that's got Sambra on it, um, as well as potentially Reds or Fallow would be, a, would be a dream, and there are a couple of blocks down there that do that, so uh, we, might, we might tag team on that one, Jono. What do you reckon? I'm definitely keen, mate, but um, I must say the other... The other thing from from listening to your podcast is Severn. So I've not been to Severn yet. Yeah, um, haven't been. I oh. haven't been, and yeah, your your podcast is. I actually dropped Mark a, a text after that um, after the podcast came out saying you've got me, you guys have got me so keen on 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 hopping down to Severn for a just it's for so a few good. days. So I know it's not a big block, but yeah, listening to the podcast about it, it's really got me it got me intrigued, and I've already been looking around on on google earth and all that trying to find those rocky outcrops you're talking about so i've been, <laughs> I've been doing my e-scouting trying to get all ready for that for that trip yeah. when that border opens i reckon i need to get my um my public land fix and i think that's the easiest one to, to oh, tickle good luck getting it i reckon i've got it booked and every time my booking runs out i rebook and i rebook and i rebook and i rebook and we've been rebooking just waiting for these bloody borders um but once that's sorted out yeah i'd be it'd be good to show you around actually Oh, yeah, I'll be keen you, for that. You, you can never underestimate that the value of Severn. It, it looked, you know, it looks small compared to the other forests, but it's not small. I mean, if, if it was a private block, you'd be, you know, think, well, this is fantastic. It's not small, but you know, it, it just happens to have very, very big cousins. Um, Pilliga being one of them. And I remember we, when when you when you are hunting the Pilliga, that's only one of the forests. There's, Pilliga West, which is about a, uh, an hour away to the west, and I think that's a 20 by 20 kilometre square block as well. So that's hard, and you can book both at the same time. So you can end up, you know, with literally hundreds of thousands of hectares of land to play around in. Um, this time we actually uh, booked Jack's Creek. Jack's Creek. Um, and as, as these weird things happen, I was speaking to someone last week. He owns a little bit of land down there, Jack's Creek, just near the fish farm. So, um, oh, really? That's yeah, it was just, you know, oh, and I said, you know, we, I was talking to someone and they were talking about, you know, the, this this secret hideaway they got at Jack's Creek. And I said, yeah, I know where that is. That's near, it's near the fish farm. And he went, yeah, yeah. and it kind of took all the wind out of his house because <laughs> I knew exactly where he's talking about. There's no secrets, boss. How do you know that place? I said, yeah, uh, strange enough. That was just outside of Corpy, in fact. So, um, there's a, yeah, there's a there's a num- number of those southern blocks that are I think uh, need to be well investigated. I when on our most recent family road trip to New South Wales, which was in uh, 
April. We checked out. There was a couple I checked out on the state forest. So I checked out on the way, and I thought these are worth looking at. Uh, they certainly are worth looking at. So, yeah, I will say that that Jack's Creek um, was an interesting state forest because obviously it, it's close to to the highway. It's closer to town, um, and there's a few private blocks up that way as well. And we 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 hopped out to go and do explore a, a dam to see if there was any any pigs on it. I don't know if you recall this, Mike, when we uh, we found the someone's leftover clothes from some yeah. sort of party all strewn across the yeah. uh, one of those picnic benches, actually, that you mentioned, That's where it. there was some clothes and some bras and who knows what went on out there. It must have been one hell of a party, but it just shows you that there's some strange thing that goes out, goes out that They're way. probably just hiding in the bush outside a site you'd scare them into yeah, the bush. Yeah, they, look, ruined their not, party. That's not, that, that's not out of the realm of possibility. Yeah, there's a particular like little picnic ground in, in Jack's Creek. Um, and it's got a fairly significant timber structure made there, you know, and we came in and went, oh, okay. Uh, I don't know if Jack's here, but we found someone else's camp, you know, and so we, 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 back, we looked around and backed out and said, we'll leave them, leave them to, the, to their own devices. But, that, yeah, that is true. Up that, that far in, you kind of it, – it, there's, a, there's, a, there's a number of blocks where you, you've got to be very, very careful understanding where you are because you, you're right on the border of, of – of, private land and it's not a straight line by any means um, whereas once you get down into the um into the uh, the more southern ends you get you get right into the state forest part of it and i think a lot of people who have tried the pillager haven't explored the the um that most eastern side of the block too so east of the newell highway um but it produces Absolutely. I mean, we we drove fact, that that eastern boundary line, um, you know, which which is literally right up against the agricultural side of it. So there's there's private agricultural lands, and we were driving, you know, a track that is literally the other side of the fence of that. Um, and I think that side probably sees a bit more, you know, a bit more. I wouldn't say poaching, but probably um, a lot more impact. You know, I, I think the, those farmers must get a lot of animals coming in, looking at the state of the fences. You know, there's some big holes in them, and um, we we saw emus and and the rest of it. But I'm sure the pigs and and the goats and that must be hitting those crops. Um, so I think it must get hit a bit harder. But there were certainly some some good game numbers, and and you know that's where the the, the side of the deer are coming in from. Um, you know, we've heard, and I know you guys spoke about it that. There's been, you know, there's deer in the Pilliga. It's on that eastern side. They're coming up, you know, from the Tamworth area all the way up that those that valley, um, which is heading up that eastern side of the Pilliga. So I think, you know, maybe with with COVID and that, you know, the deer haven't been hit so hard in New South Wales, maybe they're gonna, you know, keep exploring up that way. It'd be good to get some deer in, in, in the Pilliga. And I think if you are, it's gonna be that eastern side of it. Um, it's it's really thick and, and heavy. Um, heavy going I think you know you'll struggle to find them but they must be in there I know um, there's some there's some good feed for them on that fringe country um, so you know they might be hiding in the forest and hitting out on that on, onto the agricultural properties to eat so it would be good it would make it a, you know a really good addition to a to a hunting trip down to the Pilliga if you could if you could you know grab a red or a fallow or something like that. Be great, yeah. I, I think um, uh, that's where I mean, I actually think there is some uh, on the harvest returns. There might be actually some harvest returns of deer in the Jack's Creek side, but that's obviously where they're going to come up. They're going to come up through that that far eastern side and, and, and into the forest. And, in fact, the best 
goat I've taken was in that side of the forest. And the one, the, the second best, that for, for a number of years that was the best, I took over in Pilliga West. So I've, I've never taken a, a big animal in, in, in the main area of Pilliga East. I mean, I've taken a lot of animals in there. I've taken pigs out of there, but the big goats I've found on both sides rather than that, in that middle. But, I mean, that doesn't mean that necessarily that's their, their stomping ground, but that's where I've done my best on, on the bigger goats in those two areas. And really that eastern side, you know, it's, it's a very different landscape. Um, you know, that's where we found the, that, that, that first rocky outcrop um, where we, we saw those ghosts on, but as Mark said earlier, I, I got out the map and was was seeking out those areas um, and found a few other areas where, you know, big big rocky outcrops with some caves and you can see the goat sign on them. But that's predominantly on that on that far eastern side mm. um, where those big rocky outcrops are. And it's you know it's certainly worth exploring. Uh, it's a very different landscape. It's you know it's it's just you know these big big mountain. I don't say mountains, but these big rocky outcrops with some nice big gorges and that. And it's, you know, when you read um, Eric Rolls's, um, you know, Million Wild Acres, he talks about the caves and people living in the caves and all that. And it's got to be down that area. And it's, you know, that borders on an Aboriginal area. So, you know, to to explore those caves and, you know, we went walking up there and, and into the caves and, and you know, potentially someone lived in there, you know, hundreds of thousands of years ago. It's, it's, it's really a, a fantastic place. It's not just... A forest it's, it's probably got some significant you know history to it as well um it's it's an amazing place absolutely amazing place yeah where when he talks about in that book he talks about the cave paintings i'm i'm assuming it's somewhere in that region um because the further you go west you know the less you see of that and when you actually go to pilliga west itself it's actually a very flat block and, it, and it's pretty plain to some serious um, flood damage so when they get a decent bit of rain it, it often they'll often close it because the roads will just get washed out so yeah you as you head east you start to, to to kind of lift out and you do get a lot more rock rock escarpments and stuff so I, I i would assume i never really try to find out where he's talking about those caves because he was talking about the fact that the goats had been in there and, and rubbed off the by rubbing against the the the, the rock walls of the of the caves that actually removed the um the, the rock art from the walls you know the goats literally rubbed it off and i'm pretty sure he's talking about it on that side somewhere and he's also talks about bohemia creek which is on that side as well yeah because i you know i went into some of those caves and the the, the goat sign the goat smell is, is <laughs> yeah. un unbelievable Intense, where Oh, it's just that ammonia smell from them in these caves. But, yeah, look, if there was some rock art in there, um, it would be an amazing find. Um, but I would hope that they get protected. Um, you know, when we, when we were there, there was a lot of graffiti um, in those caves, you know, people scratching in their names and that, which which is really sad to see. You know, these, these are such old structures. They've been there for millions of years and potentially, you know, the Aboriginal history of some of those caves and to see people scratching and, you know, someone's name i was here or you know with a heart and, and all the rest of it was it was just quite sad to see that something so potentially or you know, something so amazing could be could be damaged like that and vandalized um so you know we need to protect this we don't we don't want to be doing the wrong thing we don't want to be causing any damage you know to be to be out in those areas to have access is a privilege um and we mustn't we mustn't do the wrong thing we need to we need to protect them Otherwise, you know, if we get if we get these taken away from us, that's 
it's it that that'll be a very sad day for all of us. I think that's a good good note to to end it on, fellas. That's um that's a good summary. Um, we've we've spoken a lot about the Pelican now. It gives me a lot more confidence, that's for sure, going in there and finding different places. I, I was hoping there'd be a little bit of a, a, a clue as to where these this magical goat rock might be, and uh, <laughs> I, I might I might edit that out for everybody else, but uh, I'll maintain that in my little black book. For the for the magical goat rock, it's big. Okay, it's not like it's going to go. When we say rock, it's, that's maybe a little misleading. It's like a, an escarpment. Yeah, and it keeps going. You think it's yeah, that's right. I, I was on top of it, chasing them on top of it for a while. So yeah, yeah, there, there's a, there's, a, there's a fair bit of rock there, and and that in fact. Um, yeah, yeah. It just you just realise you start. I think you see it actually before you you get to it. It kind of appears out of out of, out of the um out of the the trees, and that's where I said, "Do I ever tell you how much goats like rocks?" And that was it. That, that's it. It's one of those great, great, great uh, coming together of events. Yeah, oh, very true. Well, um, good luck with your pursuits, Jono. Thanks for sharing. Thank you. Your insights. Um, interesting to hear the journey from South Africa up to the uh, up or over or around to the UK and then down under to Australia and and you've really taken it on. So uh, good on you and hopefully we can join you on a trip sometime shortly when we're allowed to venture south because we're all getting itchy feet. I can feel it. Absolutely. Mm. I mean, as we said earlier, Mark and I had a few a few trips planned, and you know, yeah. we slowly we slowly pulled them back closer to the border. First, it was Victoria, then it was New South Wales, and and now we're we're, we're still stuck in Queensland. So hopefully, uh, my hopefully latest one, my latest one's just been cancelled. I had my email from Air New Zealand last week saying we've cancelled your flight in November, so that's off. Uh, I've now got a blank card, and I'm I'm off fishing. Yeah, that's that, that's a that's a that's a, a dream of mine is to hunt new zealand i'd love to that's oh that's that's public land hunting at its best i think um just those it's good conversation for another podcast coming up i can tell you it's a it's a different experience that's for sure that's it. Mm. okay Mark? mate well, look um thank you very much for your time and your and your knowledge and experience i'm sure those listening are going to get, as we hope, a little bit more uh, confidence in in taking this on for themselves. So again, thank you for that. Yeah, no problem. Anytime. All right, we'll catch you around sometime soon. Definitely catch you up soon. All right, hey, Cheers, guys. Guys. See you again. See you guys. Bye.